Hey guys, Jack here, recording from Rio in Las Vegas. We're a couple thousand miles farther west, a couple thousand dollars richer than our last episode. Uh, and we're just here to say thank you for tuning in. Remember to head to justhandspoker.com for more great content of all sorts. We'll see you there and enjoy this week's episode. So, uh, one question I'm sure you've been asked this before, but what, what made you want to start becoming a poker educator? I don't really know if there was any particular moment where I said, oh, this is something I want to do. It was more like some of my friends came to me and they said, since we have learned a lot from various poker forums and books and whatnot, why don't we make a site that teaches people how to play poker? And um, I, I certainly would not be where I am today if I did not learn from a lot of my peers. And it seemed like a good way to give back. And these days, what does your kind of poker career look like? How much of it is writing versus coaching versus kind of other things that aren't playing? And Well, so over the last three or so years, I've made more of a shift towards trying to be home more. I have a wife and I have a son who's four months old now, and I knew I wanted to make sure I could be home for at least something like six months after he was born and also probably three weeks out of the month at, um, you know, like that's the, that's the minimum I want to be home. So I, uh, three years ago, I was just playing and traveling the high stakes poker circuit about three weeks per month and then being home for about one week per month. Now it's more of, well, over the last six months, I, like I said, I didn't want to travel. I traveled one time. I traveled to the world poker tour championship in Florida because that was a relatively close stop from New York city. It's like a three hour flight. And you could invest something like $75,000 in a week there. So it's a very high-volume tournament. And I always make a point to play the high-volume series. So um, a few years ago, before PokerStars changed things up, that typically meant a lot of the European Poker Tour events, because there you could play a lot of... Like every day, there'd be a $5,000 buy-in tournament, but that's sort of changed now. So who knows what's going to happen going forward. But um, my plan currently is to spend about one week per month or so playing whatever high-volume series there is around the world. Uh, and then when I'm at home, I kind of do whatever is on my plate. I have a to-do list that's about a mile long, and I find the thing that I think will be most beneficial, and I knock it out. So um, I recently launched a poker, I guess I say recently, it's I guess a year old now, uh, pokercoaching.com, where I, have, I upload interactive quizzes every week, and also we have a monthly homework question. I also have a inner circle there where I do effectively office hours like a college professor about two week, or two hours every two weeks. So um, the students can get online, they can ask me their questions in real time, and I go through their situations and try to give advice that is tailored to them. So that takes up a decent amount of my time at home now, and my students are loving it, so it's, it's a win-win for everyone. I don't really have plans to write books. It's more like it just falls into my lap and I do it. So um, recently, my, my most recent book that's going to be coming out during the World Series this year is on small stakes, no limit hold'em. So I have two small books on small stakes, no limit hold'em. I, made, I mean, these kind of fell on my lap as well. So I, I was streaming on Twitch and I realized that a lot of the people who are asking me questions, uh, like even my most basic books were not really tailored for them. They, it's a little bit too advanced. So I made two small stakes books small stakes uh, strategies for beating small stakes poker tournaments and strategies for beating small stakes poker cash games. And the purpose of these books was to be a very cheap entry point for anyone who wanted to get decent at poker somewhat quickly. So 
I price the books very cheaply. I think there's something like $5 on Amazon, and they're not a difficult or a long read. I, uh, the longer of the two is about 120 pages. And those have been the bestsellers on Amazon ever since I released them. So um, my publisher, I, I self-publish those books. But I also have a publisher for bigger books. They came to me and said, clearly these books are doing great. We want to make a big book on small stakes. So I recently made a book, a big book on small stakes. It's going to be called Mastering Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em. And it is about 500 or 480 pages. So much bigger than the other two and much more in depth. But it's meant to be a complete guide to tackling small stakes no limit hold'em. But it seems like a lot of projects, they just um, they come out of nowhere and they seem like reasonable ideas, so I do them. Yeah, I, I definitely can relate to that. Uh, I think a lot of people can in a lot of areas of life. I'm curious. So as a new father, um, with this sort of, I guess, reversal of time away from home versus time at home, time playing poker, time not playing poker. I'm curious how, I guess you have a pretty small sample so far, but how has that changed like the feeling at the table? Does it feel maybe more like a job, less like a job? Uh, I'm, I'm curious. I would definitely say it feels less like a job because I know I'm going to get to play six or eight tournaments in the month and I'm just going to go out there and do my best. Whereas whenever you show up to the table every single day, it's more like, ugh, I got to go play poker again. And I'm going to go out for five weeks during the World Series of Poker, so it's not like I'm just stopping playing poker altogether. But um, whenever you are grinding every day, I think it's very easy to not look forward to the next day. And whenever you don't get to play very often, you are much, at least I know, I'm much more likely to look forward to it. And this is what happens to a lot of amateurs. They get to play, you know, once per month and they're really excited to go play. And I, I think that's a, it's a good motivator also to know that you're only going to get to play a few tournaments or a few sessions of cash games and you better make the most of it. So I think it's like a good anti-burnout mechanism. That said, you don't get in a lot of volume, which is why whenever I do go play, I try to just play a ton and try to play very relatively high buy-in stuff. Um, so it's, it's certainly different, but I, I can see how if I had infinite time, I would certainly do it this way, but I don't have infinite time. So maybe we will go back to playing a little bit more in the future at some point. Right. And, and since you're sort of trying to put a lot more poker into a single day of poker than maybe you were when you had more days for poker, how has that changed like your routine in terms of preparing, like, let's say, you know, for let's, I guess, focus on tournaments, because I think that's probably mostly what you're doing at this, at this point. Uh, how are you preparing differently, knowing that you're going to be just putting in really long days, uh, very, you know, over a short period of time? Well, so I've always been someone who puts in long days. What I would do before they had multiple tournaments every day, like they do in most major stops now, is I would play whatever the main tournament was at roughly noon, and if I busted, I would play cash games until about midnight. And I would just do that every day. So I'd make sure I'm playing roughly 12 hours of poker each day. If I bust the tournament at like 9 p.m. or later, I wouldn't go play the cash games. But if I busted before 9 p.m., I'd usually go play for a few hours. And now, I mean, the most recent trip in Florida, they had roughly two tournaments every day. And if there was not two tournaments in a day, there was something like a 25K on the next day or a 10K the next day. So it, it made logical sense to not go play something relatively small or to go play like 10, 25 no limit cash game or whatever they had there. So I have always been someone who puts in a lot of volume and that's, that's just not so much of an issue for me. And I think that's because I come from an online background where when I was 18 to 21 years old, I would just sit and play sit and goes all day. I would play roughly 
14 hours per day every day for three years straight, and I guess that got me accustomed to it. Yeah, wow. That's that's a lot of poker. That's I mean, I've never gone through a long period of time playing that much in a day. I mean, I think we've all put in some marathon sessions, but that's impressive. Well, it's interesting you say that because I don't really put in marathon sessions ever. I just put in long periods of time playing a lot. Because, I, I, I mean, my longest session has maybe been like 20 hours or something, which is not even that long. And I know that I don't function so well on no sleep, and I don't like being awake for two days. <laughs> I, know, I know I don't like being awake for two days, so why do that to myself, especially if the game exists such that I can show up the next day and play it. And, like, when I was playing those 14-hour days every day for three years, and it really was every day. Like, I would take maybe three days off per year. Um, I mean, I knew the games were soft, and I was just trying to play as much as I possibly could. This was in you know, 2003, 2004, and uh, that that just led me to to grinding it out every day. So it was like having a really long job. And you know, even before that, whenever I had jobs in high school, I would make a point to work double shifts whenever I could because it, it's just like not a difficult thing to sit there and do your job reasonably well for what, 16 hours for me. So. I guess that's just a mindset I've always had. I'm not not afraid of doing work, and if there's a decent payoff, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that probably separates you from the vast majority of people in this world. Uh, you know, while, while I pride myself also being able to do a lot of work and be productive, 14, 16 hours is definitely a lot more than I've ever been able to handle, especially doing that multiple days in a row. Well, it, it's fun when it's fun. And you have to remember, back when I was playing these sit-and-goes, I was winning a lot of money for me as a high school student or college student. Um, I think I was winning at something like $400 an hour, which is a, a very good amount for an 18 year old kid. And good, good amount you, for you, most ages. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't like the game's only good for two hours per day. Like it is for a lot of high stakes cash game players. Now is like the games are just good around the clock. So yeah. show up, make a point to play great and do that as long as the games stay around. And I did that until Party Poker closed to Americans a long time ago. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, a product of kind of how unique and very much lucky of a situation you had back then. Yeah, um, well, I mean, well, a lot of people did it sort of differently. They realized, oh, my God, $400 an hour, I can play one hour per day and have plenty of money. And that's what a lot of people did. And they ended up winning, you know, like 50000 in a year doing effectively nothing, whereas I won much more than that doing a whole lot of work. And... I, I think I recognized that back before a lot of people recognized it. That said, I was somewhat slow to jump to cash games because eventually the sit-and-goes sort of died as the games got tougher and tougher and they started introducing higher and higher stakes. Um, the games started to get tougher, so the return on investment for good players would go from something like 10% down to 3% or so. You're still getting good rake back, but um, I, I wish I would have switched to cash games sooner because a lot of my peers who switched to cash games sooner ended up winning a ton of money at cash games because they got into games with uh, Guy, the Cirque du Soleil owner who was just giving it away, and I didn't get any of that. So uh, while I was um, taking advantage of the softer games because a lot of the best regs were moving to cash games, I did not win, or I didn't have the opportunity to win as much as I possibly could because uh, you know a lot, of a lot of people who played in those high-stakes games, a few of them did very well, and a lot of the other people just did poorly and lost all their money. So uh, maybe I was lucky to not hop in. Who knows? So how much cash do you play these days? You, you live in New York City, correct? Yes, I don't play any in New York City at all. I make a point to keep... Uh, I, I try to not play poker whenever I'm at home, just because I don't want to be 
getting up and going to the casino in the middle of the night. And there is no like 9 a.m. game till 4 p.m. game, which is, I mean, if there was a 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. game every day down the street from my house, I'd probably get up and go play it. But um, what I, part I like, of the city you live in? <laughs> there, there might be. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. even want to do it. And I mean, I've played a few home games here, and they rake the hell out of them, and you don't get paid half the time, and I'm just not interested in that. It's not what I'm trying to do with my time. And I would much rather sit at home and make training content to help people who want to get better. It, I mean, it, whenever you're playing poker, you're really just helping yourself, right? And you're, you're helping one person. But whenever you are helping a lot of people, when you're teaching people something, like whenever I do a webinar, there may, may be 100 people there, and I'm spending one hour of my life to help 100 people, and they're getting benefit out of that one hour. So it's, uh, it's like you're scaling, right? I mean, like a podcast, right? Here I am spending time out of my night, and I'm perfectly happy to do it because I know that your listeners are hopefully going to enjoy it and learn something. Yeah, so I, I mean, we agree with you, and we really like engaging with, helping with, entertaining our listeners, uh, or at least we hope we do. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting context for that because, you know, in some ways, I, I think you could make the argument that poker is a zero-sum game, and so you're, when, when you help 100 people in your webinar, that money is coming from somewhere. Does yeah, but I'm, I am fine beating the people who have no desire to learn and get better at the game. Okay. So if I'm helping people who are somewhat like-minded, who are not afraid to work and put in the volume and do their best, that's a okay with me. Right. And I, I think that's, I mean, that's my feeling. Uh, and I would guess Zach shares it. There's always something that comes up when I'm talking to my friends. Like, how much money would you give away? Like, let's say we have me and five other friends. How much money would I give away for each of my friends to get, let's say, $1,000? And I feel like I would give a pretty good amount, like 3K. I would give away 3K to give all of my five friends $1,000 each, so producing $2,000 in value. Mm -hmm. um, like one night we went around the circle and everybody else was like, nothing, nothing, obviously, or like 500 bucks, you know, like some chump change. And, uh, Were you hanging out with I, poker people? or I think Yeah, poker players. Yeah, that, that's why. <laughs> and I guess I'm, I, I'm happy to give if it's going to help out a lot of people. And I mean, these are like my friends, you know, like I, people I actually like. And I, I mean, it could be more like 4,200 for all I know. And, I mean, like your podcast, if I could give a thousand bucks and give, let's say, 10,000 podcast listeners a dollar each, I'd probably just do it. Because, you know, it's, it's a nice thing to do. <laughs> so everyone, email info at, um, <laughs> what, what's yeah, the Yeah, if you get 10,000 emails, <laughs> get 10,000 emails, somehow, yeah. the, I guess uh, you, you two will put up the other 9,000. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then we'll do it. All right, I think that sounds fair. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious... At this point, well, so it sounds like you, back in 2003-2004, when you sort of, I guess, understood before other people that it was time to get a lot of a good thing in that wasn't going to last forever, and you've moved from sit-and-goes to cash to, I guess, mainly tournaments these days, and at this point, is it really about the money for you, or are you, do you have other motives for wanting to play are wanting to play these big field tournaments? It, I mean, it's sort of an interesting question. I don't really try to quantify it or classify it so much. It's more like I enjoy playing poker tournaments, and I am happy to go play the poker tournaments. I like playing the poker tournaments. I like also having my coaching business at home. I like helping people. It's, I mean, it's not like I have tons of life skills or anything where I could go be a doctor or something. So, 
this is this is effectively what I do, and I, I do my best at it. Uh, so you've been doing this, you know, you've been in the poker industry for a while now. Do you currently have any aspirations to branch out, or are you? It seems like you're very content. Well, it, I guess it depends on what you mean branch out. I mean, I'm certainly not trying to go into any other field that requires any sort of degree or anything like that. I'm not going to go back to college anytime soon. So, I don't know. What are your ideas? Give me some ideas. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think naturally the people that are attracted to playing poker and that can do so at a high level are also generally pretty entrepreneurial. And there's a lot of shared, shared skill sets. So, you see a lot of, and you see a lot of people uh, that used to be you know, famous high-stakes players, whether tournaments or cash, and you see some of them that are successful in fields like finance, investing, and starting businesses. You also see some that, that fail, but you see, I think, a lot of poker players that decide they don't want to continue playing poker full-time or be in the poker industry full-time, do things like that. So I Yeah, investing is kind of an interesting thing. I mean, I own pieces of lots of various poker-related companies, but these are all poker-related things because I actually understand them to some extent. I... I'm always a little bit skeptical of my, I guess, abilities because in poker, while it certainly takes a lot of skill to get good at it, just because you're good at poker does not mean you're going to be good at anything else. And like before I quit my job a long time ago as a, a kid making $10 an hour, I was winning like $10,000 a month playing online. And I did that for like six months before I decided to quit my $10 an hour job because I wanted to be sure of it, right? <laughs> and... Now I, I get maybe I still feel that does that need to be somewhat equally sure. I guess I'm a nit at heart, and it. I, I guess I just don't want to put. I, I realize that I have a nice potential of profitability where I currently sit, and you know not just because of poker, but because of my poker training business. It's a reasonably profitable business, and to spend time away from that, learning another skill where I'm likely going to have to start somewhat low probably doesn't make sense for me. If I was exactly a poker player playing the tournament circuit, I would probably would have found something else already, but that's not what I am. And that's not what I'm doing. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely, that makes sense. Um, and you see a lot of like, whether it's poker players that were successful at poker, getting out in other industries or people that started companies that now are just in, you know, doing a crazy amount of angel investing. Uh, typically where people fail as investors is investing into markets, into businesses that they don't fully understand. So Yeah. yeah. I, I, try to, I try to at least halfway understand the things I'm doing. Yeah. And I, and I, re, I, I think one thing I'm lucky at is that I, I say lucky. I mean, maybe it's skill or, I don't know, genetics, who knows. I kind of realize when I don't know what I'm doing to some extent, and I realize when I know what I'm doing. And... I think that's a problem that plagues a lot of poker players is that they think just because they are competent at poker, they must know everything or they must be at least reasonably competent at everything. And I mean, like growing up as a kid, I was always pretty good at most things I tried besides basketball because I'm not good at basketball. But I, if I found something about something I was actually good at, I would really hop into it. But if I was just like marginally okay at it, I would shy away from it. And I realized very quickly if I was marginally good at it or if I was actually good at it. And it's it's a big leap for someone to switch, um, I guess, jobs or careers. And people usually do that when they need to or when they want to. And I don't need to and I do not want to at the moment. 
Yeah, I think uh, it's beyond reasonable. Well, for our listeners, I, I think maybe this came out sometime in the recording, but this is the second time we've had Jonathan on uh, to record this episode. We experienced a number of internet-related issues, and Jonathan was extremely generous uh, in getting back on the phone with us to talk with us about his career, his mindset uh, on poker generally. Jonathan, I was wondering if you would leave us with both uh, general advice for aspiring poker players, professionals, uh, aspiring professionals, amateurs who want to move up in stakes, uh, increase their profitability, and also if there's anything else you'd like to you know, let our audience know about past books, uh, places to find you, anything along those lines. Oh, my God. The first question, we could probably talk for, I don't know, 100 hours about this. We're not in um, a rush, so... You so know. give me... So broad, generic advice. Well, for novice players, you need to just study the fundamentals of the game and realize that we are not just blindly gambling and throwing money in the pot. For recreational slash amateur players who are trying to get good, you want to figure out why the players who are beating you are doing the things that they are doing and figure out what you can do to take advantage of them. So stop them from taking advantage of you and then figure out how to take advantage of them. And a lot of players, I feel like, just show up to the table with their predetermined strategy and they run it and they see what happens. And, you know, they may be thinking and maybe their predetermined strategy is to show up and try to think about what their opponents are doing and go from there. But I think you're going to find that just developing a relatively solid, robust strategy that's difficult to exploit is going to be a very good starting spot. And I think a lot of players just like read one poker book and think they know everything about poker and go from there. I mean, a lot of people have read a lot of the old antiquated poker books from 15 years ago and think that that's how you play poker. And if you do that, you're going to get crushed. And I think that a lot of people think that their poker skills are good enough to carry them. And, and that's just certainly not the case because if you are struggling to beat the middle stakes or the low stakes, you're probably just not that good. And it's kind of harsh to say it, but I mean, it's just the truth, right? And a lot of people don't like accepting that. A lot of people like to think that they are great at the things that they are doing and the things they're spending their time at. Um, so for professionals, what do we need to tell professionals? I don't know. Learn to play better. <laughs> keep, keep doing better. Um, study a lot. I mean, I study tons and tons of poker videos. I, I watch lots of poker videos. Every day I'm watching poker videos. And I'm trying to figure out why the people who are better than me or the people who are winning at the high stakes online, I'm trying to figure out what they are doing that is allowing them to be some of the best players in the world. And I mean, I recently bought a piece of this poker backing site, Pokar, because I wanted to get access to their training videos. <laughs> and um, it, I think it was certainly worth the investment. I mean, they're winning a lot of money too, so it's good. But I mean, I've learned a ton just from that. And you want to surround yourself with a large group of peers who think about the game in various ways. And then you have to be able to figure out how to implement parts of their games into yours so that you can play great. Or you can just find the best player ever and follow what they do. So, so, so Jonathan, at the same time, though, a lot of people tell you they're the best ever. So, go ahead. Yeah, a little aside. What what does studying look like for you on a given day? So you watch poker videos. What I, I'm sure a ton of most of our listeners, if not all of them, would be interested in what types of techniques you, the different ways you study. I mean, in the past, I have played around with this old program called Sit and Go Power Tools. Now there's 
much better programs for these situations like ICMizer. But um, I just learned how to play ICM. I went through and I, every, every day when I would play, back when I used to grind online a ton, I would play for about six hours. Then I would have lunch and I would put all six hours worth of those hand histories into this program, Sit and Go Power Tools. You can probably do it in ICMizer now. And it would roughly spit out hands that were perhaps not ideal. And then you go through all of them. Maybe there'd be, let's say, 100 hands. It would take, I don't know, about an hour or two. I would go through those hands, and I would see if I was making errors based on what it thought was the ideal play. And that made me really good at sit and go because I did that. I did that every day. I went through all of my all of my games and found spots where I thought I was screwing up. And I think that is something I did a long time ago that has helped me a ton. Just because now, like, I'll go through and play on ICMizer's programs. They have like quizzes or something, and I do very well at them. I, I don't miss a whole lot of questions, and I haven't studied this stuff in ten years. It's just because it's been ingrained in my mind because I did it a bazillion times, right? Um, now, I mean, like I said, I bought a piece of the Pokar backing site because I wanted to have access to the cutting edge stuff they're doing. And they, they run a lot of um, PO solver simulations and card runner EV simulations and all this. And I don't do this stuff on my own, but they sort of distill it all to exactly what I need to know, which is very beneficial because I don't have infinite time in the day. And... If I can just get cliff notes of the study sessions of 10 people who I respect greatly, I'm certainly going to do it. And that's kind of what happens by watching training videos from the, some of the best players in the world. So um, I would definitely tell all the professionals to sign up to training sites and watch videos on whatever game you're playing. I think that's just a no-brainer. At the same time, realize that some people making videos for training sites are just not that good at poker. Or they're reasonably good at poker, and you may just be better than them. So keep an open mind. But um, I'm not running a whole lot of simulations on my end anymore like I used to because now I have other people who do it for me, which is a lucky spot to be in, I suppose. Um, See, so yeah, I guess that's the answer to that question. I watch a lot of videos and I take a lot of notes. Take a lot of notes when you're watching videos, by the way. If you think that studying poker means coming home from work and having a beer and watching Twitch for an hour, that's, that's not studying poker. Yeah, a, a way that I usually talk about with students in differentiating study is active study versus passive study. And um, I'm glad you mentioned the part about notes notes at the end because I think, you know, just taking some notes, um, even if you're not taking, you know, a ton of notes throughout the whole video, turns watching videos into, you know, basically as active study as doing simulations or kind of drawing out the, the decision tree for hands that you're playing compared to just, you know, watching a video and kind of just mindlessly letting yourself agree with the the people that are in the video or in the podcast. Yeah, I mean, whenever I'm watching videos, I'm always pausing it. Like, anytime I'm watching a live sweat video where people are playing, I'm always pausing it before they do their action to just see what I do and then confirm it with what they do to either they like it or they don't like it. And then if they don't like it, I try to figure out why. So uh, whenever I'm watching videos, I usually play them at 1.5x or 2x speed because I'm used to going fast from playing lots of tables online. But then I'm pausing at a decent amount. So an hour video maybe, well, would take 30 minutes if I just played it straight through at 2x speed, but then um, you get through to maybe like 40 minutes after pausing it, thinking, writing down notes. And I'm always trying to find new little plays to implement into my game. And going through... And at the end of the day, I, I, I do certainly care about what is fundamentally sound in game theory optimal, but if you tell me one play just prints money versus the player pool and another play is like barely winning money, well, I'm going to 
pick the one that's printing money. And learning through a lot of other players' data is a good way to go about doing that. Right. And for those of you who haven't tried listening to podcasts, watching videos on one and a half double speed, uh, I also highly recommend it. It, it. It's a little bit of an adjustment, but uh, you can just get through a lot more content in the same amount of time, obviously. Well, it's like people who say that they don't understand how you can play four tables or 24 tables at a time, and it takes a little bit of practice. So whenever you first start listening to podcasts, maybe find someone who speaks a little bit slowly and then put them on 1.5x speed, and eventually that'll just become normal. And now I listen to all my podcasts at 2x speed, and you know, again, I do a little bit of pausing, I do a little bit of rewinding if I somehow miss something, and when I'm, when I'm listening to podcasts, I take notes. I listen to tons of podcasts when I'm at the gym and traveling and all this. But... um. What was I saying? Oh, so take notes, pause it, and get used to it. So find someone who speaks slowly, and then eventually the people who speak closer to normal, you can listen to 1.5x, then you move to 2x, et cetera, et cetera. Just so like you'd play more and more tape. So don't start with this podcast, because Jonathan is... That aren't, they don't matter to you. You're just practicing multi-tabling. Then you go to three, then you go to four. Next thing you know, you have 24 tables, no problem. And um, you have to be careful to make sure you're not just autopiloting the podcast because you want to make sure you're understanding what's what's going on but um you know if you can if you can do twice as much or if you can do twice as much as someone else can in the same amount of time while still absorbing the content fully that's just clearly a much better use of your time small edges from jonathan little sounds like a big edge to me doing twice as much (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 2x is a lot even 1.5x is a lot yeah, um, as long as you're retaining equally. Uh, but even if you're giving up, well, you know, we can obviously model this, and it's not worth the exercise. Uh, it's a good thing to do. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Real quick, where can our listeners find you, find all your content? Uh, and we'll be linking to this in the show notes as well. All right, well, they can follow me on Twitter, at Jonathan Little, just my name. And I have a website, jonathanlittlepoker.com or jlpoker.com. You can go there. Each week I put up an educational poker blog and also a podcast, Weekly Poker Hand, where I go through a hand each week, kind of like we did earlier, but not quite so advanced. And I also have a poker training site, pokercoaching.com. You can get a free seven-day trial. You have no reason not to sign up. And I have a lot of interactive quizzes there. It'll teach you to play as I've played my hands. And sometimes I go back and I review my hands and realize I probably screwed up. And I certainly let the students know that. And uh, we also have homework questions. And I challenge the students to submit their homework answers. I go through and I look over them all. I I discuss all of them over over a webinar. Uh, It usually takes about three hours or so. And the goal is to teach you to think about poker and become a strong poker player. So check that out at pokercoaching.com. Well, I'm sold. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. This was really great. And uh, I think Jack and I especially appreciated uh, just how much content you can pack into such a short time, which speaks to you listening to things on 2x speed and, you know, working 14 hours a day. (laughs) I have heard people tell me that people who don't speak English natively that I need to speak slower. So I apologize. Go back, listen to it at half speed if necessary, and you'll get there. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Thanks, Jonathan. I hope to see you at the WSOP this summer. Yeah. Say hi if you see me. Okay.